The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. Well, I think some of you know that uh, Kim and I are going to be going to Alaska in a few weeks, and uh, so I'm starting to read a little bit about Alaska, and uh, I was reading this book about the youngest uh, Iditarod winner at 25 years old of uh, winning this race, and you just learn a little bit about mushing, which is totally new to me, but you know, you have a team of dogs, and it's this race used to be 20 days, and now they've actually gotten it down to 10 days, and it's basically a survival of how little sleep you can get, and rest your dogs and rest yourself just enough so that you can continue to press on. And, um, but what I'm learning that was insightful to me is the particular person that's leading uh, this crew of dogs, you know, the, I guess he's the musher, whatever, um, he has to know everything about his dogs, and every dog is different. And you have to know which dogs can lead up front, which dogs are better climbers, which are better sprinters, and all the intricacies of what they can handle, when they need to be moved to different positions. And they all have to have these, it's really an amazing, and you have to figure out which dogs can actually go, and sometimes even along the race, sometimes some dogs will get sent off like you're done and you know there's an interest a whole interesting process of all that but it reminded me that that's like our lord he knows every little thing about us and he knows how to get us to the finish line and that's the whole point of doing this iditarod is you got to get to the finish line now obviously if you you want to finish but then you want to be first but jesus in this passage before us today we're seeing what the kingdom of God looks like when it breaks in. And what you're going to see is that, that there's like this turning of like those that are on the outside are being brought to the inside. And those that are on the inside are now finding themselves on the outside. And some who thought they were fit for the kingdom are not. And some that didn't think they were fit for the kingdom are. And so it's a, a wake up for us as we think about ourselves in this. So let's give attention to, to Mark 10, and we're reading 13 to 31. This is God's word. And they were bringing children to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. He took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. 
Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the, uh, the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus, Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there's no one who's left houses, house or brothers or sister or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundred time, hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. Let's pray again. Father, we ask for this word now to search us. Just as we would search it, we know that, Lord, this word is alive. Uh, it is truth, and we know that it's the very words of God. And we know that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. And, Lord, I pray it would lead us to you. And that we would not harden our hearts or be stiff-necked, but that we would humble ourselves and see the things that hinder us keep us from your kingdom. We pray that, Lord, we will grow in grace. We ask in your name. Amen. So like I've been saying, Jesus is describing how the kingdom of God and what it looks like when it breaks into the world. And what we're seeing is you have a contrast in stories, right? You have, we're seeing who can come in and who can't come in and how they're to come. And in Acts 17, we kind of get this paradigm um, kind of uh, grid for us to think through this chapter. We're told there's a mob forming in Thessalonica. The city's in an uproar. They attack the house of Jason. They drag him out before the city authorities and they begin to shout. And this is what they shout. These men have turned the world upside down and now they've come here also. And they're acting against the decrees of Caesar saying there's another king, Jesus. This couldn't be really more apropos. These men are turning the world upside down. Well, we would say right side up. And Jesus comes and breaks into this world, and when he begins his public ministry, he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is, is at hand, or it's here. It's here. And when Jesus is bringing this kingdom in, he begins to start turning things upside down or as we might say right side up because in their radical fallenness the world is upside down and so Jesus is telling us this story two stories we have an in crowd and we have an out crowd we have who is in and who is out and so often in the, in the gospels what we're seeing is the in crowd is going to become the out crowd the out crowd becomes the the in crowd and those that are on the outside are found themselves being brought into the inside and those who are inside find themselves being left outside. And so the idea is that those whom the world values, esteems, holds in highest regard, we discover, huh, 
they're not held in the highest regard or esteem or highly valued in God's sight. But those that are held in low regard, low esteem, lowly valued, are actually highly valued in God's sight because God is turning things right side up. So look again now at the text. Put your paradigm on. Put the grid to the text, right? You have children being brought to Jesus. Children are not highly regarded, not highly esteemed, not highly valued. They're not deemed as VIP. They're not very important people. And the disciples knew that. These big, smart disciples, they're protecting Jesus. We're the bodyguards. These are non-VIP. Sorry, Jesus. Sorry. Hey, whoa, families, whoa, back off, back off. They're not allowed to see Jesus. And they think they're doing Jesus favors by keeping away the children because this is not real ministry. And so the disciples think they're helping Jesus. But what does Jesus do? We are told that when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. He is angry. And, and it's almost comical to read this. But Jesus isn't humored. He's indignant and he's angry because his ecclesia, his church, his called out people, the very ones that he's called to follow him are following the world system. And Jesus has to make it right. He has to turn things right side up. He has to turn these disciples right side up. So he gives a double imperative with a promise. Double imperative with the promise. The imperative is literally, leave them kids alone. Now, Jesus hadn't listened to Pink Floyd, but that is really a pretty, good, pretty accurate translation. It's leave or forgive them. Leave the kids alone. Don't hinder them. Don't forbid them. That's the second imperative. So let them come to me and don't hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. We should never view children as like lesser and like working in the children's ministry as lesser. You know, like, oh, you know, that, I'm down there working in the children's church, not in there today, you know, not really with the big people. That's where the kingdom of God has happened, just as it's happening here. And so the disciples should have known this because what are we told in scriptures? God's covenant blessings have always been poured out upon believers and their seed. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring, he says in Isaiah 44. Or Psalm 103, which we love. The steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting. And his righteousness to who? Our children's children. They should have gotten this, but they didn't. And when I was a kid, and I'm still a big kid, I love two cereals. Lucky Charms, I still love Lucky Charms. I mean, I'm a lucky guy if there's Lucky Charms. And lucky Charms and Tricks. And the marketing slogan for Tricks, let's see if you can go back and remember. What was the marketing slogan for Tricks? I love it. Tricks are for kids. And I just remember as a kid, like, you know, being with my mom and like going to the grocery store and like pulling out the tricks, be like, but mom, tricks are for kids. Like, I am empowered. Like, these are for me, right? I mean, it's, it's, it was a great marketing scheme. I mean, it was great for kids to, they never felt more empowered to hold up the, the tricks. They're going to be holding them up this week. Well, he's let, Jesus is doing precisely this. 
He's letting the disciples know. He's letting the hearing audience know. He's letting the original reading audience know. And he's letting us know who are reading this today that the kingdom of God is for kids. It's for kids. Leave them alone. Don't hinder them. Let them come to me. And he holds up the children as an example to us all. And he says, truly I say to you, whoever doesn't receive the kingdom like a child shall never enter it. Now that, of course, begs the question, well, then how do children receive the kingdom? Well, let's think about that. I mean, they don't come with extra baggage. They don't come with extra luggage either. They come expectantly, eagerly, simply, lovingly, thankfully, without worries, without money, without goods, without good works. They just come as they are, but they come expectantly. There's something beautiful about the simplicity of children. Now, Haddon, I'm going to pick on you one or two times here, but there are great stories of your childhood. When Haddon was a really young guy, we were at our other church, and an elder of the church thought he was, you know, did a great thing. He gave Haddon some ice cream. And when he gave Haddon the ice cream, Kim looked at Haddon for this teachable moment, and she said to Haddon, and what do you say? And Haddon said, can I have a spoon? I mean, the ice cream did not have a spoon. He didn't think in the least that he had to earn his ice cream. He just wanted to eat it, and he wanted to know, can I have a spoon? I mean, it was actually a pretty profound answer. (laughs) Another story about Haddon, which I've told before, is that when my parents were in an RV, when they would come to visit Maryland, they would stay at this farm. And it was called Flying H Farm up past Liberty Town, where 26 and 31 comes together. It's in the middle of nowhere out in the country. And on this farm, there was this cool grass strip where the planes, this guy actually had a plane and he could fly in. And uh, he, this guy got into ultralights. And just like, you know, you, if you go to Lou and Joe's up on Route 27, you'll see a lot of motorcycle bikes because the motorcycles know to, that's where you go. It's like honey to a bee. Well, all of a sudden, this grass landing strip was like the hangout spot for the ultralighters in the area, and he would have fly-ins. And it would be kind of cool to be up there when the ultralights were, were coming in, you know, to see these. You guys know what an ultralight is? It's a small little engine on the back of a very dangerous thing that you probably shouldn't be, you know, volunteering to go get on one of these. But... Um, Anyway, we're up there at the farm, and I'm walking ahead through one of the big, huge barns. There's this huge tractor equipment, but there's three ultralights in there. And the one ultralight was the really nice one. It was an 85-horsepower ultralight, and this thing would do about 55 miles an hour, a lot faster than your typical ultralight that does about 30 or 35. We actually got to go up in that thing. That's a whole other story. Probably the closest I felt to like new heavens and new earth of being in an ultralight and chasing birds on this gorgeous night and uh, your feet are just on the post like a motorcycle and you're just out completely exposed. It was wild. But I can't fly one of these things. I'm not a pilot. But Haddon saw this ultralight. He saw two seats. He got all excited. His eyes about popped out. He says, look, Dad, two seats, one for you, one for me. Let's go. And he was ready to explore the world 
He had the confidence in me that I could do this thing, and he was all excited to go fly. And I had it like, it kind of just scared me. Like, I just said, Haddon, I, I can't fly this, this ultralight. But what I loved about that is he just had an abandonment and a trust and a love that he thought his dad could do this, and he wanted to fly, and he was ready to go. Now, I wonder if that's how we come to the Lord like that, with an abandonment, a trust, and a love, this, this childlike trust. And some of you guys remember, just a little while ago, we had a, a, a communion Sunday. We had a children's message. And it was a humorous moment where one of the children just saw the crackers. And, I mean, this child, I'm not going to name the child. The parents were just received as, as, a, as, as you know. But, and, and one of the 2.0 parents made an unbelievable athletic maneuver to rescue their son as their son was making a mad dash for there's crackers and I'm hungry and I'm, I'm going to eat them. And we all kind of got tickled that we're watching this. But there was something beautiful about that. Children are hungry, they see food, they go and eat it. Like, he wanted to come to that table with an abandonment. What if we come to the table like that this morning? With just an abandonment, that my needs are taken care of, God loves me, and I'm just coming to him, because he is, he is my satisfaction, he is my savior, he's, he's my Lord. Jesus is saying, let the children come. Come like that. Come simple, come trusting. It's just the opposite of the next story, right? So you have the, the outsiders are now being brought in, the children, but then we've got an insider. And the insider is this rich, young ruler. Now, if you're looking for a rich, young ruler in Mark's account, you're like, where'd that come from? The little header above says rich young man or whatever, whatever your text might say. But where do we get that from? Well, Matthew's account and Luke's account, all three talk about this guy. And Matthew's account refers to him as a young man. And then in Luke's account, we're told it's a ruler who comes up to Jesus. And then Luke also tells us that he, went, he became very sad when he went away, for he was extremely rich. So when we put Luke's account with Matthew's account together, we get a rich young ruler, okay? That's where we get that. So the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he has everything that the world desires. He is the epitome of the in crowd of what we all think is the good life. Does he have money? Yes. Is he young? Yes. Does he have you know, these two great things that the world values? Yes. But even more, he's a moral, upstanding, and righteous guide. I mean, he says, all these I've kept from my youth. I mean, we realize he hasn't gotten his wealth by oppression, extortion, coercion, or stealing. He's an amazing climber. He's ascended really fast to the top. And he wants to make sure that he's good with God. And so he has a question for Jesus. And of course, Jesus has a question of his own. And so he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' reply is, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then Jesus proceeds to recite God's law to him. But he leaves out the 10th commandment, 
And the rich ruler, as he hears these different commands being laid out, you know, he tells him, you know the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness. I mean, that was just boom. We go from six, seven, eight, ninth commandment, do not fraud, honor your father and mother, throws in the fifth commandment. And he says, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. And Jesus, holding the trump card, holding back, he begins to apply the law now. And he says, he looked at him, loved him, and said, you lack one thing. Sell all you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. And disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for your great possessions. What is Jesus doing? I mean, this is like one of these tougher passages in the, in the Bible we were talking about in Sunday school this morning about how, you know, different approaches you know, you read different uh, passages and even how some pastors, you'll, you'll hear the gospel in different ways in different churches. And, and certainly when you look at how Jesus ministers the gospel, it's different to each person. But this does not seem like a conventional approach at all to do evangelism. Does this seem like something that we would do to tell somebody about Jesus? I mean, here's somebody, how can I inherit eternal life? And you're telling them, go sell all you have and then come follow me and you'll have treasure in heaven. Um, what Jesus is doing, because it's very, it hurts our head, it doesn't seem seeker-friendly, he's applying the law so the rich young ruler can see his need for Jesus so that he will come desperate and hungry and without pretense like the children come because Jesus is turning the world upside down or right side up. So he holds back the trump card of the 10th commandment because that's the internal commandment. It's the one that gets at the issues of the heart. It's the one that, that broke Paul that said, you know, he was fine until he got to the 10th one. And then in Romans 7, you know, when it says, you know, then he discovered what it means to covet. And he says he died because it, he, he realized he coveted all the more. And the commandment is you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. What Jesus is saying is to the rich young ruler, you who want to live by the law, why do you call me good? Like, do you realize how good I am? Do you realize how good Jesus is? We're perfect. He's trying to show them you're not. You who want to live by the law, well then be perfect. And Mr. Mr. Ruler, Mr. Young Ruler can't see how myopic and nearsighted he is, that he's tethered. He is tethered to the treasures of this world. He's tethered to this life. He's tethered to all that he has. And Jesus is saying, you have to get rid of your stuff. Give it to the poor, those who need it. Come follow me, you'll have something better. You'll have a better treasure. You'll have treasure in heaven. But the rich young ruler went away sorrowful because he had great possessions, but his possessions possessed him. So that he considered his possessions greater than Jesus. He considered his possessions greater than what he would have to give up to follow Jesus. And so the call to repentance to all of us is universal. But it's applied uniquely and individually to each of us. And so for the rich young ruler, the way that Jesus applied the repent to each one individually, to him, his God, was his whole identity, his worth, his value. The world system revolved around what he possessed. 
And as a result, he couldn't enter the, the kingdom unless he could let go of this world. I wonder how many of you have heard the trick of how to catch a monkey. And, it, you know, you can easily Google it and you read about, you take a coconut or you take a gourd and you drill a hole in it and you create the hole just big enough for the monkey to get his hand in. And then you put something that the monkey loves to eat. Something precious like an orange or, you know, some type of food that's yummy. And, the, and then you tie the coconut or the gourd to the tree and you send out the hunters. And when the monkey puts his hand into this gourd or into this coconut and he grabs hold of this uh, orange, he can't get his hand out. He's trapped. But all the monkey has to do is let go of the orange and he can get his hand out again. But it's absolutely impossible because the monkey is a captive to what he possesses. And once he's got his hand on it, he can't let it go. And therefore, the monkey is trapped. Well, Jesus put it like this, because we're a lot like monkeys. He says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And they're exceedingly astonished because they're upside down and they value this world and they think those that are rich, God has blessed them and therefore they're closer to the kingdom and Jesus is saying they're further. And they say, then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible. With man they, they, they can never let it go. If it's just up to you, you can't let go. You can't let go of that little orange. It is too precious but not with God. All things are possible with God. God is the only one who can break the grip of greed and turn us into generous people. Otherwise, we will hang on to this world. We will live for it. We will love for it. We will think this is all there is. But when the kingdom of God actually does break into our lives, as we saw in the story of what we read this morning, what happened to the early church? As the kingdom of God broke in and they say, what shall we do? And they get saved. What happens to these people? I mean, the spirit of God's come upon them. What are we told? Nobody considered any of the things they owned as their own. And there wasn't anybody needy among them. And if they had to sell possessions to take care of them, no problem. They just did it. They had been released that the, the monkey grip had been broken because the Spirit of God came in and that was just, boom, changing them, making them thankful, thoughtful, grateful, and generous. Then all of a sudden, their view, they began to see money as a good servant and a bad master, and they began to use money to serve people instead of using people to serve money. Boom! The kingdom was being turned upside down, and, and these people are turning the world upside down. That's exactly what was happening was the kingdom of God was turning them right side up in the book of Acts. And they loosened their group, their grip on their possessions. And they rightly saw themselves as stewards and God as owner of everything. And so they realized they're just, God is the owner. I'm not the owner. It's not mine. And they saw other people's needs and they were glad and happy to meet those needs. And they discovered this wonderful principle that it's more blessed to give than to receive. A few of us have started reading this book by Christopher Watkin called Biblical Critical Theory. And it's a 
big tome of a book, but I loved his chapter on creation. It's the chapter two in the book. And he talks about, in this book, he's just talking about how the world doesn't see, it just sees like one circle. And the one circle is just everything is creation. And they can't see the creator-creature distinction. And that God is the creator. And we're the creature. And he's much bigger. We're much smaller. And that God is just fine without the universe because he was. In the beginning, God created. He already existed. And the world's going to be just, or God is going to be just fine when the world doesn't exist anymore. He, he doesn't need it. And you start to get your mind around that. And, and, and what he talks about is how God, and, and, and it's both in creation and redemption, is God is just lavished generosity upon generosity to his creation. That he didn't need us. And yet, what has he given us? Well, just start looking around. Did he give you a few hundred taste buds? Or thousands of taste buds? Did he give you one color to enjoy? You know, are you just going to look at purple the rest of your life? Or one flower? Or ten flowers? Or a hundred flowers? Or thousands and thousands and thousands? Is he going to give you a few stars to look at? Or millions and millions and millions? Because he's so lavish in his abundance. He wants you to see his glory everywhere. We were talking about the movie Contact that came out in the 80s and it was exploring space and it was wrestling with it's, the universe is so big. Why such a waste? Why was it such a waste? There has to be people on other, somewhere else in the, in the universe. But God's people know it's not a waste. It's God's way of showing us how unbelievably abundant is his grace in creation to the, to the ones who would steward it and in redemption. So you just start to think about how this should make us live. We should be incredibly grateful people. So this is what he says. That because this is the case, he's saying this whole idea of the, the way that the world thinks of like God is that you barter with God. It's a market system. You scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. And everything is done through a way of negotiation because that's how we do everything in this world. This is what he says. What deal can we strike with God when he gives us everything we have? The Bible's picture of human beings is not as wheelers and dealers in the corporate boardroom, signing contracts with the gods or ultimate reality in order to get ahead. Instead, we're joyful children on Christmas morning receiving unexpectedly lavish gifts from loving parents. Free gift, not contractual obligation, is at the heart of the Bible's picture of reality, just as it is the heart of Bible's picture of redemption. If this principle is followed through, it yields a world in which the poor, the weak, and the aged are not cast aside because they have nothing to put on the table in the great business deal of life, but they're cared for and honored. God gives freely to those who can't stand on their own two feet, those who cannot cut a deal with him. The primacy of the gift provides the pattern for society of compassion, of helping the needy when they have no means to pay back, or reaching out to the poor and the ungrateful when they're unable to repay. It lays the foundation for a caring, compassionate society that I suspect we would all like to live in and that we'd all like our families to live in, especially in times of need when we're aware of our own neediness. 
You see, we have so much to be thankful for. It's all His. So why are we holding on to the, to the orange? We've already been given it. We've been given everything. The meek are going to inherit the earth. But then lastly, Jesus holds out a promise to an implied question. I like how Mark records this. as Peter began to say to him, See, we've left everything and followed you. What's the implied question? I mean, what's in it for us, Jesus? Is it worth it? Don't you remember, Jesus? We left Zebedee Fishing Enterprises. We left the whole thing behind. We, we said goodbye to it. And we're following you, Jesus. And Jesus knows this. And he says to, to Peter and the disciples, Truly I say to you, as he says to us this morning, that no one who's left houses or house or brother or sister or mothers or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecution and in the age to come eternal life. What in the world is Jesus saying? When you think to yourself, what am I giving up to follow Jesus? You're going to call me. My parents may not be believers. Family members may not be believers. Or you call me to the mission field and I have to leave everything and I'm going to leave behind all this good life, this good house, this good place. And now you're going to call me to, to follow this man who's going to be my husband. Or, you know, everybody's got to leave something. And for some of these people, it's big. This means a lot to missionaries. You think, Brian and Esther, you don't think this means something to them when you say, you leave these things behind and you, and you go to the Middle East, to the middle of nowhere, and you're trusting what? That God has promised, I'm going to provide something better. It's called the church. He will give you other friends, other family. And I know for many of you, that don't have believing family members, and you go away on vacation, and you're so thankful to come back to church because you're like, man, I've got a family here that's so beautiful. And that's what God has promised, and he's promised the disciples. There's going to be something. We're all called to leave things, and we've got to wrestle through. What is he calling us to leave? But he does tell them there is going to be this with persecution, so it's not going to be easy in this life. But in the age to come, you're even going to be rewarded more, eternal life. And you see, he's, what Jesus is promising is something better than what the world can give. So we can let go of the orange like the monkey and have, you know, I have to have this. No, we can lay it down because we have something better. So the question of the sermon title is, where is your treasure? What are you really banking as your treasure? And what we discover, what we have is, we have, as Matthew Henry says in his commentary on Matthew 16, 11, in your presence is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Matthew Henry just says we have better provisions, better possessions, better employments, and better enjoyments in heaven. But we get a taste of it now. And so as we come to the table this morning, let's remember this, as Blaise, Blaise Pascal put it like this, that God alone is man's true happiness. But since man abandoned God, man has found nothing to take his place. He's looked for goodness in all things and has been disappointed in every case. But some have realized that happiness desired by everyone cannot lie in any of the particular things which men crave. They have understood 
that happiness cannot be based on external objects which an individual can possess, such as wealth or power, since their possession by one individual causes grief and envy in others. This realization is the beginning of faith, since it teaches us that happiness must transcend the things of creation and must therefore lie with their creator. You see what Jesus is doing here? He's turning the kingdom upside down. And he's turning it upside down. Have you entered into it? Are you walking in it? He's got to turn his right side up afresh this morning so that we're valuing like the children. And we just come simply with trust and with love and thankful hearts as we come to this table. And we're reminded he's given us all that we need. He's enough. Rest in him. You don't need the orange. Let's pray. Father, do forgive us. Oh, we're so quickly blinded by it and forgetting the promises of all that we have and all that we need for life and godliness we've already been given. And we've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. And yet, we tend to think we need to go back to Egypt. That we need to find another leader. Think that somehow it was better when we thought we had these meat pots and different vegetables and it was so good when it was really, it was bondage. So, Lord, meet us now as we come to your table. Minister your grace afresh to us. We ask in your name. Amen.